America knows war. They are war masters. We tortured some folks. So I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. You bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. You were born with democracy choices. You have free election right, but we don't. Please help us. Patton Rod Save the World. Welcome to Patton Rod Save the World. I'm Roderick Makem. I'm Pat Brown, and it's the week ending 14 March 2015. All right, and uh, so we've got a couple of topics this week, um, and then a, a couple of sort of housekeeping matters after that, I suppose. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, fairly violent uh, topics this week, although they often are. Um, and uh, first up, uh, we will be discussing, as we often discuss, ISIS. Yes, I feel as if they're holding our uh, podcast hostage, right? Um, but they are an interesting <laughs> example of a number of different things that are going on in the world at the moment. True. The second topic is going to be um, a discussion of the 47 traitors. The uh, congressmen, I think it was senators and House representatives, both? Um, or maybe it was just senators. I would have to have a look at some uh, stories to double-check that. 47 congressmen wrote a letter to Iran essentially trying to spoil the negotiations that are going on between the US government and Iran at the moment. So yeah. that'll be the other topic of discussion. It's a very, very interesting one. Yeah. And we'll probably just discuss Iran more generally as well. Yeah. So, yeah, mate, you're across the facts on the, um, the foreign fighters. Yeah, it was just um, a couple of things that have happened in the, uh, in the past few weeks. Um, uh, and it, um, I, I thought it was an interesting topic of discussion uh, in that two Australians have now uh, died in the Middle East uh, in the, um, well, battle with ISIS, one on either side. Um, a, uh, a bloke from Queensland by the name of Ashley Johnston, um, who, uh, who went and joined the uh, Kurdish fighters fighting against ISIS, uh, was uh, was shot and killed, um, and then last week a uh, teenager from Melbourne uh, was a atheist from an affluent suburb, no Muslim background whatsoever, um, by the name of Jake. Can't remember his second name. Um, where is he? He's here somewhere. Jake Bilardi. Um, he. Uh, he went and joined ISIS and uh, blew himself up in a failed suicide bombing. Failed in that he didn't manage to kill anyone but himself. Did you just say he was an atheist? He, uh, he was until he converted to Islam. So he converted to Islam. Right. Yes. I was trying to square that circle. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Um, uh, and so, yeah, you've got, um, uh, you've got a couple of people from Australia who you would think have absolutely no connection um, to this struggle whatsoever ending up going over and getting themselves killed on either side of it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously you've got, you know, people from all over the world uh, signing up and joining, uh, joining up with ISIS. You've got uh, bloody schoolgirls trying to jump the border from uh, uh, going to England to Turkey and trying to get across to um, or become brides of ISIS. Uh, you've got, yeah, that's uh, the bad boy impulse gone terribly wrong. Terribly, terribly Yeah, this wrong. isn't just jumping on a motorbike yeah. with a chap who has tattoos. This is <laughs> a different level of stupid. Yeah. Um, you've got ex-American um, military uh, going and joining the Peshmerga. Uh, yes, in order to avoid um, being classified as fighting with a terrorist organisation, apparently 
The safest way to do that is to fight with the Peshmerga because they're, they're, they're not on any terrorist lists. Mm. Although various uh, Kurdish organisations actually are, namely the PKK. Mm. That's, uh, that's uh, they are... They're out of Turkey yeah, exactly. for the most part. Yeah. Although they have fighters in Kurdistan, obviously, as well because yeah. of the border. Um, so, I mean, what are your thoughts on this, man? I kind of don't think it's the most ridiculous impulse if you're a human being to ignore the abstractions that are our countries mm. and to go and fight in a cause that uh, you're passionate about. And we've discussed this before, I think. Spanish Civil War. Yeah. A good example. Um, that was the done thing. That was considered that, yeah, absolutely yeah. valid yeah. back in the 1930s. Um, yeah, I mean, George Orwell uh, went and uh, yeah. fought against the, uh, the Arthur Kersler. Yeah, um, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's actually a pretty illustrious list yeah. of people who are involved in that caper. And um, I, I suppose I don't see this as any different. No. And, really. I mean, of course I disagree with one side. <laughs> um, but, you know, if, uh, if this is something that floats your boat, if you see this as a clash between... Um, one way of organising society and another way of organising society, then I don't really, you know, a lot of people are critical of these guys. I really don't see the issue with it. Um, I don't really have much more to say about it more generally <laughs> than that. I mean, what do you think about it? Um, well, I suppose, uh, yeah, in terms of the, the guys going and, um, uh, and fighting for, for the Kurds, um, yeah, you know, if that's if that's something they you know feel is a, important for them for them to do, it's an interesting thing though that they're not actually. Uh, I, I don't see that they're harming the world at all by doing that. Yeah, yeah. How governments respond to it will be fascinating. Hmm. In the sense that well, when the sorry to interrupt. But yeah, the sure. um, uh, the Australian the Ashley Johnson, the guy who went and. Um, uh, and was fighting for the Kurdish People's Protection Unit. I'm sure they have a name in... in uh, uh, wait, is Kurdish a language? What do they speak? Yes, it Kurds? is. No, okay. they do have their own language. Yeah, uh, I'm sure they have their own name in Kurdish. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was, um, he was apparently very worried that he was going to be charged by the Australian government if he came home. Um, yes, but, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense that the government is okay... Hmm. With certain people, with people fighting with certain organisations, and emphatically not okay with people fighting for other organisations. Yeah. It really just comes down to nation state politics. Um, I, I think that there are some interesting questions around what might happen if you went and fought. Say, if an Australian went and fought for a Palestinian resistance organisation against yeah. the Israelis, where there is actually an occupation going on. Hmm. Um, Meanwhile, you already have Australia that's going over to Israel and joining um, yeah, the Israeli army. Yeah, you do. So, there, I mean, there are many Australians who fought in the Israeli army. Yeah. And so, like, it, it starts to get tricky where the lines are more blurred. I actually think the reason that there's perhaps not a great deal to say about this in hindsight <laughs> is because, well, if you're fighting against ISIS, well, you know, it makes perfect sense to me. That you would that people would have an impulse to do that. Perhaps what's more interesting about this is the. Uh, I mean, what do you think the motivations are of the people who go and do this? 
uh, to fight against them, yeah. fight against ISIS. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say there's, uh, there'd be quite a few motivations. Firstly, uh, a lot of them um, seem to be more sort of ex-military types. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, they, they would see, um, you know, that they would see this as being uh, a war that needs to be fought. Um, There's a fact that also be, I think, an element of, uh, dare I say, Hollywood to it. Yeah. Um, a, um, I, I can't imagine that most of them haven't, it hasn't crossed their mind that they're going and doing something heroic. Um, sure. Although it's hard to criticise people for that urge. No, no, it's a fairly normal urge to, to yeah. have, I think. Um, you can, people, I think you can call someone out for being like self-aggrandizing yeah. and douchey, but um, you know the bloke who got himself shot in the head. Oh, why do why do I have that in my head? Um, That's where he was actually shot. He was shot somewhere. <laughs> somewhere <laughs> he certainly him. was. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I suppose that's a decision that he made, and I can't really find it in myself to criticize him for making that decision. Hmm. It's not the decision that I would make, but, you know. I think what's really interesting as well, I wrote, I read a New York Times article about returned Afghanistan and Iraq veterans in America going and fighting back in the Middle East. Yeah. And what it seemed to be for a lot of them was there were two primary motivations. The first was that they'd come back home after a life in the military where they'd done... Uh, pretty sort of extreme things. I hesitate to call them incredible, but extreme. And they were working menial sort of jobs. Mm -hmm. The skills don't tend to translate that well into civilian life, despite the protestations of politicians. And the, the feeling that some of them identified was that I was doing such extreme, high-level things and then I came back and I was just sort of eking out my existence with menial tasks. And I want to go back to the extreme. I want to go back to the um, consequential stuff that I was involved with before, the yeah. life and death stuff. And, I mean, I suppose that sounds like quite cliche in the sense that, you know, the old Vietnam War sort of cliche yeah. was... All I wanted to do was get out of there, and then when I got out of there, all I wanted to do was get back. Um, so it actually, it's yeah. interesting the way that's played out. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's probably something that um, uh, anyone who's, um, uh, well, uh, any soldier in history has probably uh, struggled with that to some extent. Um, yes, yes. And actually, now that I think about it, um, I mean, my, my father is a Vietnam veteran, and there was a chap in his unit who did several tours. He was a volunteer and he just had not had enough of it. And he went back and fought as a mercenary in the Cambodian army against the Khmer Rouge. So now that I think about it, I suppose there's a historical precedent for it. And perhaps yeah. that's not been as well publicized because he didn't have a Twitter account. <laughs> but um, he damn near got himself killed when the Cambodian army deserted as the Khmer Rouge advanced across the paddies and he said that he just 
looked around at one point and all of a sudden his comrades weren't there Holy shit. because he'd been on a large machine gun and had just kind of not noticed that everyone had deserted. And he That's said, not where you want to be. The Khmer Rouge were advancing in a line across the rice paddies. Behind them were officers with handguns who were just shooting dudes who wouldn't walk forward. Fucking hell. And the Cambodian army fighting for King Sihanouk or whatever his they name was. They that and just thought, They no. just got out of there. <laughs> anyway, he managed to get out of there. But, like, that was the thing. He'd not had enough. And there are some people yeah. and that's their thing and that's the way they're wired. So it makes sense that now that they have this place to go back to, to re-experience those, those, um, to re-experience that life, that's what they're doing. Yeah. I think, um, uh, we'll probably talk about this a bit more in our 47 Traders discussion, um, but I think, uh, we may, I might as well point this out now, um, because they're kind of going to be touching on a similar theme, um. You could argue that these guys are, well, you know, on an individual level, advocating for war um, and, um, you know, in their own way, expanding the scope of a current conflict to potentially a much larger one. Mm -hmm. um, but, we're, and, you know, with the, uh, the congressman who just seemed hell-bent on laying the groundwork for a war with Iran. Um, but these guys, they are, the soldiers, uh, the people going and joining Peshmerga I'm talking about now, they're doing that on an individual thing. Like, that's what, like, th no one's forcing them to do no. it. They're doing it, they're doing it themselves. It's a choice, um, yeah. It's not like they're politicians who are, you know, say, who are laying the groundwork for hundreds of thousands of other people to be sent somewhere and killed. Um, you can't criticise people for making choices for themselves. Yeah. And um, it's like I've said, not the choice that I would make, but I, I have difficulty criticising them for it. Um, and I suppose this weird phenomenon of like alienated Western Islamic youth feeling drawn to ISIS, I think it's the same impulse. It's just that it comes from what I consider to be a completely twisted perspective. And let me remove that, what I consider to be, because I, I'm not a cultural relativist. I do think certain things are better than others. And the way that we've got shit arranged is better than the way that ISIS wants to get shit arranged. So I suppose, you know, I completely disagree with what they're doing. But um, what it seems to be for people, actually, in many cases, is like a crisis of meaning. Basically this existential question that they feel they need to answer. And the answer that they come up with is, meh, I'm going to get religiously extreme and head towards the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty shit way to look at life, I think. Yeah, but it's not um, unusual. Yeah. It's not unusual. And I think there have been actually recently in the media a few articles dealing with the motivations of individuals who've gone and joined ISIS and what might be driving them. And for the most part, it seems to be this just sense that they don't have things going the way they want them to be going. It's not necessarily that things are going badly. Mm. It's just that they're somehow unsatisfied. I mean, maybe what we're talking about here 
are just people who are drawn to extreme things. And maybe there's like DNA for that. Yeah. And they're maybe drawn... they should just go and climb a fucking cliff. Well, that's the other option, and that's what some people do. But, yeah. like, I suppose the cultural context, it depends um, what opportunities you've given to express that particular tendency. Well, if you're, if you're, you know, being raised in uh, England or Australia or somewhere like that, you yeah. have plenty of opportunities to um, uh, outlet your extreme impulses. Yeah, that's true. That that's don't true. Involve... Going in um, chopping people's heads off. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that with you on that um, and if you've uh, been sort of raised on the streets of uh, Baghdad for the past 15 years on the other hand maybe you don't have so many options um, mm. Mm. all right well it feels like about time to move on to the Iran question um, so what happened uh, over the last week was that 47 uh, we'll just call them congressmen wrote a letter directly to the leadership of Iran contending that regardless of what deal they struck with the American executive, i.e. Obama, um, the Congress would need to approve it and that in their view Congress was never going to approve it so don't fucking bother. That was the basic uh, idea. That is an extraordinary breach of it, etiquette. It's astonishing. I, it's, uh, I, I can't Blame. I mean, I admire their initiative and their creativity on one level. I kind of have a begrudging respect for people who discard rules that can't be enforced. <laughs> because it's essentially seizing an opportunity to advance. Apparently, this one can be enforced. Um, oh, no, there's absolutely nothing that can be done about those guys writing that letter. Um, I was reading something during the week that it actually fell like, the reason they're being called, like it actually falls within the definition of treason. Maybe uh, it does, and, and, but not as legally defined. There's nothing, legal action is just out of the question. Uh, can we pause for a second? I'm sure I read somewhere. This All right, let's find out about this. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, sorry, how, how long can you go to jail for, for this one? From memory, I think three years. Three years, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, various other legal experts have looked at it and say that that is, you know, it's a law that's well out of date and wouldn't apply. But there is some there is some discussion about it. Yeah, there's a legal argument, I suppose. Yeah. Um, the sort of unfortunate thing about the law is though there's a legal argument for almost any proposition. <laughs> um, so this one looks like a stretch. So the. Um, here you go. There's a there's a petition to um, at uh, White House uh, dot, dot gov All right. um, calling for these guys to be charged under the Logan Act, and two hundred and seventy seven thousand four hundred and forty six people have signed it at this point. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, I mean, that seems to me to be not the way to deal with it. Um, so I'd love to see him get charged, though. Even if oh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. I mean, I just don't like the idea of charging people for expressing their views. Uh, I um, I agree there are competing considerations. Yeah. And I think that they're really, you know, they're trying to wreck something here. It's very important. Nonetheless, you know, I'm a free speech fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it comes down to for me, man. I mean, 
I'm just so hesitant to block any kind of speech, um, I'd probably include this in the ambit of stuff I wouldn't want repressed, even though I think it's a completely stupid thing to do. Um, what's really Where would you draw the line on that? Like if uh, Iran and the US were just about to draw up an historic peace deal, mm. um, and, uh, you know, a Republican senator got a copy of the agreement, wiped, it, wiped his ass on it, and mailed that to uh, the Iranian leader. Well, I mean, so if we create a thought experiment <laughs> where definitely there's going to be a peace deal, yeah. and definitely the guy doing what he does Scupper is going it. to scupper it, yeah. then I would say restrict that speech. But the problem is, is that it's very hard to find that, that kind of clarity in the world, yeah. and, and then, I tend to yeah. err on the side of the free speech. But yeah. But I mean, in this instance, you know, what Obama is clearly doing is laying the groundwork for a, a peace deal. Mm. And if that gets, you know, undermined and, and stopped it, you know, every step along the way. Um, I agree, it's completely irresponsible. Yeah. There's no argument about it. It's just whether or not I think they should be prosecuted. And I don't think they should be. Um, this is not something I approve of by any stretch. I just, yeah, the prosecution for me is a bridge too far. Like, if the American Congress now considered a law to restrict this kind of speech and activity, yeah. I probably wouldn't be okay with it, um, truth be told. But I think what's really interesting, there are so many different facets to this that are fascinating. Yeah. Um, first of all, Tom Cotton is a new congressman. Yeah. And he's the guy who ran this little escapade. And what's really interesting is that in the, in the Congress right now, people are able to leapfrog the established hierarchy with these kinds of publicity stunts. Yeah. And Tom Cotton is the second I mean, sort of big example of this. The first being the um, Texan senator, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Ted Cruz has leapfrogged. He hasn't kind of done his time in the Congress. He hasn't sat on the heads of committees. He's just thrown rhetorical bombs. And he's gotten an enormous amount of cachet from that. And Tom Cotton seems to be following in his footsteps. I mean, these guys are not interested in waiting around. They're interested in doing quite radical things. And the, the I suppose, um, temperature of their party where everybody is really just interested in doing whatever they can to damage Obama allows for pretty unprecedented stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, I suppose it's worth just pointing out my major problem with what these guys are doing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Is that um, uh, apparently a lot of the people who've signed up for this are, you know, old, bushier Republicans. Um, who, uh, you know, were all around for the, you know, the big war on terror, the axis of evil days, mm. um, where the plan, you know, fairly openly stated, um, was to, uh, to also invade Iran at some point. Um, mm. but Iraq just worked out so incredibly badly for America that that kind of shuffled off the, uh, the radar, um, thankfully. Um. But it worries me that these fucking morons don't seem to have learned from that um, and still seem to think that war with Iran is going to be a good idea um, for whatever reason. Ideological mates in 
munitions companies. I don't know. Um, well, look, so I have some certain sympathies with the people who want to bomb Iran. Um, I'm not going to be backwards in coming forwards about that. I'm on balance against it if it can be avoided, obviously. Yeah. But the arguments on the other side, in my opinion, are relatively compelling. Um, I think Iran is, for the most part, a rational state actor with irrational rhetoric. But you can actually categorize all states that way. Yeah. Some more than others. Yeah, yeah. some more than others. And I think they're further out on the spectrum than others. But... And it seems to me to be completely in their interests to get a bomb. And a few yeah. years ago, it makes... Countries tend not to get invaded if they have a nuclear weapon. That's weapon. right, yeah. The Pakistanis really... I mean, the Pakistanis are a good example of that. They yeah. put themselves beyond reproach in weird ways because of the fact that they have a nuclear weapon um, or weapons yeah. that apparently they drive around in trucks that are completely unsecured. So, um, with... The American army on two of Iran's borders, okay, a few years ago, Iraq and Afghanistan, with yeah. a stated policy of regime change, it kind of made sense to me that yeah. the Iranians would want one. Yeah, well, and you know, at that time, you you actually you had uh, right-wing Americans talking about invading Iran. You did, in, and you had an aggressive army on two of your yeah. borders. So, of to me, it, yeah, it, it kind of made sense. Yeah. The problem being that if Iran gets one, you then have an automatic reaction where the Sunni rival states, Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait, Qatar, they also would get one. And the Russians and the Americans were faced off for 50 odd years with nuclear weapons and came perilously close on a number of occasions to letting them fly. Not because anyone wanted it, but because there are misunderstandings and miscalculations and just human stupidity. And I think that being as unsophisticated as they are, if you have a bunch of Middle Eastern nation states with nuclear weapons all fucking pointed at each other, that's a lot more complicated than mutually assured destruction between two countries. So you've got just for the sake of argument, mm-hmm. you had Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, maybe Turkey, okay, and they're all pointing them at each other. That to me is a recipe for almost certain nuclear conflict, and you're talking about millions of people dying. That's true. Um, although you would have heard the same arguments um, that uh, you know India and Pakistan. Um, yes. would be a recipe for uh, inevitable nuclear conflict. Um, I don't agree with that because well, it's bipolar. Be making, yeah, but people were making that argument. Sure. Um, considering, you know, the amount of, uh, of blood that had already been spilt, uh, spilled over Kashmir and things like that. Um, it has, in fact, cooled it down, yeah. weirdly enough. Yeah. I mean, that's the bizarre thing is that the nukes tend to just stop everything because you are in a sort of mutually assured destruction stalemate. Yeah. But what concerns me is where you have more than two. Hmm. I just think that that's kind of a much more unstable situation. Yeah. It does, I mean, I, I see that argument. But um, at the same time, like, it's in terms of, uh, um, you know, Obama looking to, you know, pave the way for, you know, if not outright peace, then certainly, you know, 
better relations with Iran. Mm. Um, it's not just America who's doing that. I mean, um, UN is, uh, has been talking in the past couple of weeks about the lifting of sanctions um, on Iran. Um, if, uh, you know, they can come to some sort of agreement over the nuclear program. Mm. Nuclear. I just wanted to make sure I pronounced it. Nuclear. That. Nuclear. <laughs> um, and um, I, I, mean, so I suppose a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, back to ISIS. The, everyone, everyone, you know, yeah, there's my enemy. There's uh, some commonalities in interest, no yeah. question. Um, but I mean, like, I understand as well why Israel is particularly nervous about it. Uh, Iran. Yeah, there has been some crazy rhetoric about Yeah, there's uh, crazy rhetoric. Um, not only that, but people say, oh, Iran isn't that close to Israel. So, well, Iran is supplying Hezbollah, which are bang on Israel's doorstep. Yeah. So, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you would, you could see a nuclear weapon sort of transported across the Middle East to Hezbollah. And yeah. I mean, uh, who knows? The possibilities for miscalculation and mistakes are kind of endless. And to my mind, it's just not a responsible thing to allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Um, at this, I mean, I agree, by the way, that America put them in a position where it was a rational thing for them to pursue it at all costs if they wanted to survive. But that's now no longer the case. Mm -hmm. And I'd suggest it's why actually the negotiations are actually happening. Yeah. It's because America's taken a less aggressive stance. They've had their asses handed to them. And the Iranians are probably aware of that. Yeah. So, I mean, in a weird kind of way, both sides are negotiating from a pretty compromised position in the sense that the Iranians are really hurting from sanctions. But the Americans really have kind of shot their bolt. And I suppose it's a fairly opportune time for these negotiations to go on. And I'm completely against the congressman who, just, who tried to spoil it with a letter. But they're really acting on behalf of the Israeli lobby in the sense that the Israeli lobby is incredibly influential in Congress. Um, so much so that when Bibi Netanyahu gave a speech to a combined session the other week, yeah. kind of looked like a president, uh, like the American president while he was doing it, yeah. Rand Paul was criticised <laughs> for not clapping enough. Not clapping hard enough. Or not clapping enthusiastically for, enough. That's it. it. It was not clapping enthusiastically enough. Does that just not sound like the most fucking Orwellian uh, complaint? Oh, it really does. It's getting into um, kind of Stalin-esque territory. Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. You were not applauding with the requisite enthusiasm. And he said, look, I stood with everyone during the 40-odd standing <laughs> ovations. I mean, what else do you want me to do? Yeah. Um, now, look, we all know Rand Paul is not necessarily in favour of shipping $10 billion to a different nation's state every year and I mean I sympathise with that if I was an American I'd probably want the money back home too nonetheless not like they couldn't use it that's that's kind of it right but the the thing is is that um, I suppose it just gives you an indicator of how sort of what the what's what the atmosphere is like in Congress it's Israel can do no wrong they tend to be aligned more with the right wing of Israel because Israel has a very strong left wing contingent. Yeah. 
um, who are like quite sensible people actually. And you know, I Bibi Netanyahu, in my view, is a really terrible human being. But um, it's it's just crazy that people can't talk honestly about issues that involve Israel because this kind of right wing Israeli lobby uh, has such sway. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, there actually is a left wing Israeli lobby. Or a, oh, see, I didn't. I'd never even heard of a left wing Israeli. Yeah, there, there's one that's started and it's gotten some traction. They're just a hell of a lot more sensible about everything. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, the American politics, bizarrely enough, is way more right wing on Israel than Israel is on Israel. Mm. Like when you read the Israeli newspapers, Haaretz is a good one. Yeah. Um, that they have an English-speaking one. It's it's sensible shit. Like, you read it and you go, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. But the rhetoric that we hear in the West, or at least that the Americans hear, is just really on the right side of the spectrum. Yeah. And I just wish that more Americans, rather than repeating verbatim what they hear from right-wing Israelis, would look at mainstream Israeli press and get more moderate about everything. Yeah. Because the Israelis themselves are fucking... Pretty, pretty reasonable about a lot of the stuff. So, yeah, end yeah. rant. <laughs> yeah, just a quick point. Um, it's something, you know, we probably don't have time to, to go into great detail on. But um, it's just something I absolutely cannot stand is when people equate criticisms of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism. Um, oh, it's just, yeah. And it happens a lot. It pisses me off too. Um, yeah. Because I'm a free speech fundamentalist and I don't believe in squashing discourse with um, accusations of, you know, that kind of ill intent. Yeah. yeah. And they are also two completely separate things. Like... They are completely separate things. Yeah. And, I mean, they're synonymous with each other. Yeah. Israel is the self-proclaimed Jewish state. So it makes sense. But, look... But, yeah, to criticise policies of Israel... Is not saying you know anything. Uh, like it's not saying anything negative about the Jewish people as a whole. Well, it arguably is, in the sense that Israel is the Jewish state. Many Jewish people outside of Israel identify with Israel, and that's why I think the Jewish people are so sensitive about criticism with Israel because to them. While there is a separation of sorts, there's a very strong link. Go ahead. Speak up. No, you, you just did exactly what we were saying was one of the most annoying things in the world. No, <laughs> I'm just saying there's a strong link. That That's different to saying that every criticism of Israel is a criticism of the Jewish people as a whole. But to deny that there's a link between the two and that people can sort of get things mixed up is... and. I mean, the other thing is, is that many people from Israel or who fought in the Israeli army are not living in Israel. So there is this kind of weird blur between the two concepts. And I, I don't think you can deny it. I agree that there's a separation. There's a separation that should be maintained. But I don't think you can deny that there's overlap. All right. Anyway, moving on. Well, why would we move on? I mean, you seem to disagree. So by all means, voice it. No, that was... Radio. so we've uh, just had a bit of an extra discussion about that. I was very frustrated that um, having initially agreed on a, um, 
uh, on what we were talking about. Pat then spent another five minutes basically disagreeing with it. Um, <laughs> Um, because I thought it was just going to be a 30 second like, oh, here's something, and now we'll move on to the next topic. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I mean, the reason I suppose, I'm not like disagreeing with the original point at all. I'm just pointing out that it's a complex discussion and that there are a lot of people making mistakes about it. And I think it's an interesting thing to discuss why people are making those mistakes. Um, because the kind of, the interplay between national and cultural identity is super complex and um, yeah anyway that's that was really the context of um, my continued discussion on the point but um, seems to have been something that's like not worth um, speaking about at the moment so did we have something else to uh, talk about or um, I'm just trying to think if there was anything else uh, that we haven't mentioned about the 47 traders because we kind of have moved off point on that yeah we have um, just, we haven't actually spoken about the etiquette breach. Yeah. Like the idea that a nation state's executive really should have run of the mill when it comes to external or foreign policy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what the, um, I suppose you could argue, the uh, uh, basis for charging these guys um, falls under, um, that they're unauthorised to, to treat with a, with a um, foreign, uh, foreign power. Um, that they are, under, yeah. they are undermining the executive. Yeah. And it makes sense to me that if you're going to arrange a system like the way a nation state is arranged, that the legislative body, which has some points to make about foreign policy, should let the executive do what it does and then come in and approve it later. Um, it seems a reasonable way to run things, and if you're going to create a system like that, it's probably not a good idea to do the other thing. <laughs> I mean, can I think of an... The weird thing about Australia is, is that our executive is actually embedded in the legislature. So, when it comes to matters of foreign policy, actually, the legislature is weighing in by dint of the fact that they're all part of the executive. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of another analogy. Uh, Who's got a system where they've really got things? I mean, the French, perhaps. My understanding is, is the French executive is separate from the French legislature. Um, but I can't think of any situation consequential enough. Well, I mean, would the uh, if uh, you know if the Australian government was negotiating a peace deal and the opposition were trying to scupper it? Yeah. Um, since they're not in uh, in power, are they not part of the executive? Yeah, well, that's actually a pretty good analogy, yeah. yeah. Because that's really what this is. These are just Republican senators. I mean, yeah. there's no Democrats. So, yeah. Like, it's, it's almost as if... But if we did the opposite idea... So, Australia treated East Timor really, really badly. Yeah. Right? So, how would you feel about the... Say, it's Tony Abbott being a total prick to the East Timorese... And Labor stands up and says, we're not doing the right thing, and writes a letter to the East Timorese and says, we're sorry about our asshole <laughs> leader here. Like, would you be against that? Uh, no, because they're not trying to scupper a peace deal that'll make the world a... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. not really the breach of etiquette that you think is the, the bad thing. Here. Yeah. It's the fact that they're trying to scupper a peace deal. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's that they're trying to lay the groundwork for another... another 
fucking war in a part of the world that uh, America has dragged the world into a morass on yeah. for the past 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we're probably in agreement on that because, as I said before, I kind of admire the chutzpah involved in doing something like this. It's just that I completely disagree with trying to scupper someone making peace. But if the shoe was on the other foot and it was something that I really agreed with that the legislature was talking shit about, I'd probably be okay with it. So there you go. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Um, now, you wanted to do a few housekeeping things, man. So uh, take yeah, it away. Yeah, firstly, just um, uh, about our last podcast on the um, uh, Yuval Harari's view that uh, technology was going to make the uh, vast amount of humanity obsolete. Um and, uh, and what was going to happen to all the masses. Um, <laughs> I love that we talk about such expansive, like, like crazily consequential <laughs> things just in our living room like it matters. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was, a, it was an interesting discussion a very, about dystopias. Uh, and we got some good feedback from uh, a bloke by the name of Simon Hicks. G'day, Simon, if you're listening. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, Simon uh, thought it was a, an interesting discussion, but that um, we were looking at it from a very sort of top-down view about, you know, what the elite or the governments were going to be able to, to do to keep all these people occupied, um, what was going to happen. Um, and, I, and he's right on that. We, we kind of did. Um, uh, in our defence, I'd say it was mostly because we were talking about Harari's uh, theories, and that was the way he was looking at it. Um, but uh, but it's true. We didn't really give much agency to uh, the masses or the you know the creative spirit of them to build futures for themselves through innovation. Uh, and Simon was saying, um, you know, in terms of new enterprises and uh, and uh, business models and industries and things like that, um, we should probably uh, have focused a bit on the fact that people can come up with those for themselves in a lot of cases. Um, uh, he was saying, you know, when he was uh, when he was a teenager, we were all confidently told that technology in the future was uh, going to have people, uh, you know, kicking back with robot masseurs and uh, flying cars and things like that. Um, <laughs> but futurists are nearly always wrong. Um, that is true. Yeah, people people thought flying cars and colonies on the moons and things like that in the seventies, um, but they didn't see the internet or social media uh, or smartphones. Um, and, um, yeah, just a, a point to make that, um, you know, what, uh, what Harari saw as, uh, the future could very well just be completely fucking wrong. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question about that. And it is weird the way that technology kind of leaps forward in some areas and just doesn't go places in others. Yeah. Like space travel just really hasn't advanced yeah. that much. I like, mean, that, like if you were talking, if you were talk, looking in the sort of 60s and 70s and in a decade, 15 years, um, we've gone from first satellite making it into space with Sputnik to someone walking on the moon, you'd think it's fairly natural that people would have thought that by now we'd be on Mars. Yeah. Um, and it just, like, okay, we've got a robot on Mars, but um, the fact that we haven't got um, any humans there that we, you know, haven't got any sort of, um, uh, you know, we, we don't have people. Like, it, I think it's the proportion in advance yeah. in the sense that between the 40s and 60s, 
you went from flying World War II era planes yeah. to landing on the moon. And then after that, it just doesn't seem to have moved that far. Yeah. And there have been major advances in the last few years with the privateers getting into yeah. it. But And we had, I think we had a podcast about that at one point. Yeah. Nonetheless, it makes, I mean, it is a strange thing that that seems to have slowed down as much as it has and other things that were completely unanticipated left out in front. I mean, I think that's a really good point. So it's kind of impossible. I mean, how, when things kind of advance disproportionately in relation to each other and it's impossible to predict which bits are going to leap out and which bits are going to slow down, that's probably actually one of the best reasons why it's impossible to predict shit. Yeah. Um, So we are well spotted. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. And, uh, yeah, the other thing, um, it's not really a housekeeping matter at all, but I just uh, just wanted to quickly pay my respects to Terry Pratchett, uh, one of my favourite authors who who died yesterday after a uh, battle with Alzheimer's. Um, Yeah, really uh, quite a cruel thing to uh, to happen to uh, uh, a bloke who was just, you know, an incredible writer, Um, written dozens of books, sold... Uh, 75 million copies around the world um, and just uh, an incredible imagination um, boundless really um, and uh, yeah for someone who'd, uh, who brought a lot of joy into my life um, just wanted to say thanks Terry Pratchett um, uh, for anyone who, who wouldn't read him um, he, uh, he basically set up a, a fantasy world called the disc world which was a, uh, a world very similar to our own in many ways uh, except that it was on the back of a giant turtle swimming through space. Um, Holy shit, that's genius! <laughs> um, and and he, u- he used this uh, this fantasy world to basically uh, poke fun at a lot of things in uh, in our own world. Everything from the postal service to the rise of the internet to religious extremism, um, and uh, and how it uh, can transverse across borders to um, uh, otherwise civilized places. Um, Mm. Yeah. Uh, would you what What would you say to people who haven't read Terry Pratchett, yeah. me included? What is the first one to start with? Um, I would actually. Uh, I'd suggest probably. I actually got asked this yesterday um, from uh, from a mate of mine, um, and a couple I threw out there because you know within the I think it's over thirty now Discworld books, it can be a bit of a thing to go where the fuck do I start. Um, if you wanted to start with something outside of the, the sort of Discworld universe that he set up, um, I'd probably suggest a book called Good Omens, which is one he co-authored with a guy called Neil Gaiman, um, which was, uh, you know, set in, um, set in England, um, and a cheerful little, uh, a cheerful little comedy about the end of the world, uh, might be a good place to start. Um, <laughs> if you, uh, if you wanted to start with, um... Uh, with one in the disc world, a uh, really good standalone novel because a lot of them have ongoing storylines. Is one called Small Gods, um, which is uh, all about the absurdities and uh, violence that's uh, inherent to religion. Um, a new atheist before his time. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think one of uh, uh, a uh, yeah, he was one with. Uh, Exceptional turn of phrase, and uh, in in a lot of his novels, uh, and I'll just read out a couple of my favourites from him. Um, one which I think related very well to Terry himself was that 
He was the sort of person who stood on mountaintops during thunderstorms in wet copper armor, shouting, all the gods are bastards. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. Let's, yeah. let's end on that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. All right. Till next week, everyone. <laughs>